little bits of white, very white, almost translucent tape on the edges of their new envelopes. We are going in, we actually, we're under martial law. We have been since 2001, and the world has gone into it simultaneously because it's all prearranged, obviously, uh, because the exact same anti-terrorist bills and laws went into effect at the same time in every country across the planet. That's not a coincidence. Anyone who's studied bureaucracies and different nations will realize that anything that they do takes time. And when it's intergovernmental, intercontinental agreements, that takes years. I'll be back with more after these messages. through the matrix just mentioning the fact that the coordination after 2001 between nations doesn't happen just like that uh, bureaucracies take years to get anything done under any circumstances and when there was so much intensive cooperation and the fact they all unrolled the same agenda in every nation across the planet at the same time tells you that all this was prepared years in advance years in advance. And we have been really under martial law, uh, a more open form of martial law uh, since 2001 to the present time. And right after 2001, the press went overboard. You can always get little clues, you see, that have been told to do something or how to present something to the public till we get some sort of subliminal message implanted in our skulls. But every station that you looked into every TV station uh, would do its man-in-the-street thing after the news, at the end of the news, asking the man and woman in the street if they would mind giving up their, their, secu- their freedom for security. This was ad nauseum, night after night, on all the stations. So you knew they were trying to get a point across to the public because, you see, tyranny has always used the same excuse to take away people's freedoms down through history. Even in ancient Rome, they had all these techniques worked out. But it was always presented to the public as a method of keeping them safe. And here's an article here to do with cyber war. And what it really is, it's a total invasion of privacy, giving authority to all factions of military, police, etc., and intelligence to spy on everyone under the guise of freedom and security. And this is... Um, from the IEEE spectrum. I'll put these links up on my site at the end of the show, along with the audio. And this is from June the 16th, 2009. On the 29th of March, President Obama said that his administration would pursue a new comprehensive approach to securing America's digital infrastructure. In fact, the President promised that the digital infrastructure the networks and computers we depend on every day will be treated as they should be, as a strategic national asset strategy. Protecting this infrastructure will be a national security priority. So it's done for protecting you, you see. We will ensure that these networks are secure, trustworthy, and resilient. We will deter, prevent, detect, and defend against attacks 
that's a beautiful legal statement. I don't know if you've ever watched the lawyers for government going over treaties they've signed with a fine-tooth comb to redefine certain words or phrases for loopholes. They do this with everything. So here, defend against attacks and recover quickly from any disruptions or damage. Now, attacks can be defined as anything. What I'm saying, it could be construed as an attack or what I put up on the Internet. Furthermore, the President said, let me also be clear about what we will not do. Now, we we know what politicians are. They're famous for a, a, a prominent gift. Our pursuit of cybersecurity will not, I repeat, will not include monitoring private sector networks or Internet traffic. We will preserve and protect the personal privacy and civil liberties that we cherish as Americans. Noble promise, it says here, but as a story on the new Pentagon Cyber Command over the weekend in the New York Times notes, the reality may be much different. The Times story says that there is simply no way the defense officials say, to effectively conduct computer operations without entering networks inside the United States where the military is prohibited from operating or traveling electronic paths through the countries countries that are not themselves American targets. Therefore, the story states that some administration officials have begun to discuss whether laws or regulations must be changed to allow law enforcement, the military, or intelligence agencies greater access to networks or internet providers when significant evidence of a national security threat was found. So there again, you see, all that to say is is there's so much um, negative propaganda, damaging propaganda out there that that's significant evidence for them to go in and do something about it. This is the kind of terminology lawyers love. Of course, what significant evidence means remains open to interpretation. Too often in the past, the government's claims of significant evidence of threat has been similar in veracity as reports of crop circles. The upshot, the Times says, is that American privacy and civil liberties may have to be compromised in order to protect the U.S. digital infrastructure. And that's, this is where they're going with all this, what they rethink what privacy is. In fact, we have to re- rethink if we even need it. Now, they've been trading the public for years that privacy doesn't matter. A generation is growing up now that thinks it's quite normal to, to give all your data to anyone who asks for it. It says here, this should not really be a surprise to anyone, however. As we noted here in November of 2007, the then Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence, Dr. Donald Kerr, was telling anyone wishing or willing to listen that America's long-held expectations of privacy had to change and that in essence privacy was whatever the government declared it to be. And there's a link from the site to that actual article from November 2007. Remember, that's the principal deputy director of national intelligence, Dr. Donald Kerr, right, who says... He says, he's telling anyone willing to listen that America's long-held expectations of privacy had to change, and that in essence, privacy was whatever the government declared it to be. He says, we need to move beyond the construct that equates anonymity with privacy and focus more on how we can protect essential privacy in this interconnected environment. What's essential privacy? 
Well, essential privacy is what government is doing and what the very snoopers on you, all these agencies are doing. That's what's called essential privacy. You, you're not essential. It says here, instead, privacy I would offer is a system of laws, rules, and customs, just your custom, you see, with an infrastructure of inspectors general on an oversight board committee and privacy boards on which our intelligence community commitment is based and measured. But really, as I say, you have no essential privacy. You're not in that category. It says, given the Times story, it sounds more and more like we should all be prepared to do an Ihsan Allahi, it says here. Uh, so, so there you go. We know what's coming down the pike. We know what's coming down the pike. We're going to redefine uh, privacy. And it says an, an old custom. Just an old custom that used to have, and we've evolved since we, we needed it. We don't need that anymore. Because, you see, the people who now take care of you and socialism love you. And they're, they're evolved. They're more evolved than the old kind of socialists, you see. That's what they're telling you. I wonder if we'll ever, ever learn from the past, eh? Most people can't even remember the past, even in their own lifetime. Even the recent past, they passed. Now, <clears throat> we really, as I say, this level of intelligence, as I say, intelligence gathering at the bottom level, are never in on what's really happening on anything. Never, ever. It's the same with all the wars going across the world right now, and the U.S. Army and the British Army is all over the place. It's all to do with, with the oil countries as, as they loot those countries, and, and as they say, they must make sure they, they keep their hegemony for the future. The U.S. and Britain must keep this power structure uh, up until the 2050, at least. So, they're, in, in a sense, they're, they're one part, on one part, they're keeping their present system going for another 50-odd years. But it's also to do with standardization of those countries into the one same secularized society. Why? Because they can do business with secularized societies. It's easy to pay them off because secularized societies, called democracy, are, are utterly corrupt these days. And, and that's all over even the British papers. Article after article with the politicians filling their, their pockets with the taxpayers' money. Uh, the cops even who are assigned to special units to do with anti-terrorism uh, putting everything down on their expense accounts, thousands and thousands of pounds, £40,000 at a time sometimes, in one night, that kind of stuff. And that's how, you see, democracies work uh, on, on corruption. But we're never really in on the big picture on any level. And that's part of the job of psyops, psychological operations, is never to allow the public to be in on what's really, really happening. We're kept out of the picture. When we're given a reason for something, it's never the, the real reason. Never. But we know, for instance, that there was a big scare after 2001 when anthrax envelopes or letters were mailed off to prominent people in the U.S. And then after about two years of investigations and blaming people across the waters, they said it came, their own inspectors said it came they suspect from Fort Detrick in the U.S., uh, which is run by the United States Army. And there's an article here 
and it's from the Washington Post. Now, who knows the whole story here? We'll never, as I say, know anything except what they tell us. It says, June 18th, 2009, by Nelson Hernandez. An inventory of potentially deadly pathogens at Fort Detrick's Infectious Disease Laboratory. Remember, they're into bacterial and viral warfare. So an, an, an inventory of potentially deadly pathogens uh, in their disease laboratory found more than 9,000 vials. This is of deadly pathogens. Had not been accounted for. Army officials said yesterday, raising concerns that officials wouldn't know whether dangerous toxins were missing. And I'll read more of this after this break. This is Cutting Through the Matrix, reading an article from the Washington Post concerning Fort Dittrich, who have lost an awful lot of their little deadly vials that they experiment with. And this article goes on to say, after four months of searching about 335 freezers and refrigerators at the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases in Frederick, what they call it, it's a research institute of infectious diseases, and Frederick, it says, investigators found 9,220 samples that hadn't been included in a database of about 66,000 items listed as of February, said Colonel Mark Cortepeter, the Institute's deputy commander. The ballots contain some dangerous pathogens, among them the Ebola virus, anthrax bacteria, and botulinum toxin, and less lethal agents such as Venezuelan equine encephalitis virus and the bacterium that causes tularemia. Most of them forgotten inside freezer drawers hadn't been used in years or even decades. Officials said some serum samples from hemorrhagic fever patients dated to the Korean War. Kurt Peter likened an inventory to cleaning out the attic, that's all it is, it says, and said he knew of no plans for investigation into how the vials had been left out of the database. The vast majority of these samples were working stock that were accumulated over decades, he said, left there by scientists who had retired or left the Institute. I can't say that nothing did leave the lab, but I can say that we think it's extremely unlikely. Well, that's very, that's, that's very comforting, Coach Peter said. Still, the overstock and that the previous inaccuracy of the database raised the possibility that someone could have taken a sample outside the lab with no way for officials to know something was missing. 9,200 undocumented samples is an extraordinarily serious breach, said Richard H. Ebright, a professor at Rutgers University who follows biosecurity. A small number would be a concern, 9,200 200, he says, at an institution that has been the focus of intense scrutiny on this issue, that's deeply worrisome, unacceptable. The institute has been under pressure to tighten security in the wake of the 2001 anthrax attacks. That's where they were posted off to different people in the U.S. It says, which killed five people and sickened 17. FBI investigators say they think the anthrax strain used in the attacks originated at the Army lab. And its prime suspect, Bruce E. Ivins, researched anthrax there. 
Ivan's committed suicide last year during an investigation into his activities. It's amazing that everyone that they, they, they put all the blame on ends up committing suicide, eh? But it's true, you see, they, they can tell exactly which lab treated which, which particular toxin. And they came up with, with the, the fact that it was definitely that one from that laboratory that had been sent across. Now, how was that sent across to these prominent people inside the U.S.? Who did it? Why aren't they trying to find out who did it? And they say, well, this guy's dead now. We think it might have been him. But that's just too, oh, too pat, down pat. And, and that stinks. That stinks to high heaven. Court appear noted that since 2001, the lab has imposed multiple layers of security to check people entering and leaving, and that there are now cameras in the labs, and that employees are subjected to a reliability program and random inspections, etc., etc., etc. I've always said we don't have to worry about other people. You always find things go back to government or the high spook agencies like the CIA. That's what you always find. Quite something. There's another article here, which I've mentioned to people before. If you join the military, if you join the military, you are a guinea pig, and you're also disposable. I've read various articles on the testing of various things on soldiers down through the decades, and again, after 30, 40, 50 years, they declassify stuff, and we all... Well, we don't, most folk don't care, to be honest with you, because that generation is generally dead or dying off, and the next generation doesn't care. That's, that's why they always declassify it in about 50 years. No one cares. But personally, I don't think most folk care at the time, unless stuff is raining down on them, personally. And this is from London, Ontario. It's an article... And I'll put these links up. It's from Ecospective. It, it's, um, it says here, it was published first on the 5th of December 2008 by Daniel O'Neill. It says, with the PCB polychlorinated by phenols, issue still so fresh in everyone's mind, I thought this would be a good time to remind people that there have been other instances of public exposure to harmful chemicals and at least one member of our community is trying to do something for those who were exposed to at least one of those toxins. Art Connolly is a resident of London, Ontario, and has been actively attempting to raise people's awareness of the dangers and effects of Agent Orange. Everybody remembers Agent Orange, because it had some incredible consequences on, on the soldiers that it rained down upon. And they tried so hard to hush all that up. It says, in 2005, the story broke of how the U.S. military, with an agreement, obviously, with the, with the Canadian government, the U.S. military had sprayed the CFB, a Canadian Forces base, Gagetown, that's New Brunswick area, with Agent Orange in 1966 and 67. I think that's the music, so I'll come back with the story after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
for Cutting Through the Matrix, reading an article from Ecospective magazine to do with the U.S. military spraying Agent Orange within Canada. Now, they're doing it at the Canadian Forces Base Gagetown. I imagine they're doing them across the country at all the other bases as well. And these bases, remember, have married quarters in them, but they also have little towns that grow up around them. And these towns service them. They, they supply the cleaners and so on, and all the people who work inside the base during the day. So their families are all living just on the perimeter of the base, in these little towns, some not so little. But it says here in 2005, the story broke of how the U.S. military had sprayed uh, the base Gagetown area with Agent Orange in 66 and 1967 and the possible health risks to the soldiers and their families who'd been there at the time. This is what they first admitted to, right? And this, this fellow here, he says, Connolly was watching the story on the news when his sister called to tell him his father's health had deteriorated and he was not likely to live much longer. Sitting in the hospital during the last few hours of his father's life, Connolly began to put the pieces together. He and his family had lived on the base from 1957 to 69. His brother had died of rays at the age of seven. He'd lost his sister to pulmonary embolism. She was 28. His mother had stomach cancer, and even his last remaining sister had reproductive issues. With his father dying, Connolly began to question if the time at CFB Gagetown was responsible. When he returned home after the funeral, he started a website called agentorangealert.com in a quest for answers and answers he got. The site received more than 3 million hits over the last three years, and within a short time it was discovered that the 66 to 67 spraying was only a small part of the problem. Documents found under the Freedom to Information Act revealed that the Canadian military had been spraying the area since 1956, and the record showed regular spraying up till 1984 of chemicals 24D and 24, or 245T. These are numeric terms for the components of Agent Orange and contain dioxins. From 56 to 84, 1.3 million litres and 1 million kilograms of dry defoliating agent had been dropped on Gagetown to maintain a training area. The area for treatment was outlined, so they actually marked the outline for spraying with soldiers who stood with little flags so the pilots could see them. The area for treatment was outlined by soldiers holding marker strakes, watching while the toxins rained down upon them. <laughs> One local civilian wrote to Connolly recalling how all the birds in her farmyard uh, lay dead and quiet, an eerie similarity to the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, before she and her family were forced to move out of the area. Over 450,000 Canadian troops passed through CFB Gagetown. That's one base, remember. Exposing themselves and their families to the toxins distributed throughout the landscape. And while the spraying of 66 to 67 is being acknowledged, this provides for only 1% of the exposed personnel. The rest of the estimated 1 million people put at risk have not received recognition much less an apology. Government tends to do the same thing always with this. They wait till they simply die off. It's that easy. That's what they do. I, I watched when the tainted blood scandal was done, when Bill Clinton signed the deal with uh, Canada that allowed all the various prisoners in certain American prisons to 
sell their blood. And it was given to hemophiliacs in Canada. And guess what happened? They all came down with awful diseases and started dying off like flies. And the Canadian government had one of their fantastic uh, inquiries. These drag on for years. That's their purpose. And uh, within about nine years, I think, most of the people were dead anyway. And then they came to the conclusion, that's what's standard. They wait to see how many is left, and if there's one or two left, they can give them a payment. It's all economics. You see, that's what we are. We're economic factors. And so were all these troops that passed through CFB, Gagetown. The government will wait till they're all dead, long dead, before they come out with the true figures on that. As I say, we know almost nothing at the bottom of any reality at all. Any reality at all. Now, I've mentioned before, too, uh, and read an article last week about the cashless society coming, and now the bigwigs are starting to mention it openly as well. And when they speak, we should listen. Uh, this article here is from, I think it's the news.com.au. Cash to become extinct as chips take off by Anthony Keane. And it says here, June 15, 2009. It says, cash extinct. Bank bosses have predicted the decline of cash as transactions are done through microchips. Cash is accelerating down the path to extinction as new technologies threaten to mark the end of loose change within a decade. They're actually saying this within a decade, they're going to go cashless. Bank and credit union bosses say cash won't be alone, with wallets and credit cards also likely to disappear too. They told the Advertisers Roundtable Forum that cash and cards will be replaced by computer chips embedded, listen to this, in mobile phones, watches or other portable devices. Australian Central Chief Executive Peter Evers believes cash will be replaced for most transactions within five to seven years, not ten. Cash will disappear as there will be other forms of carrying cash, stored value in your phone, or whatever it may be. Now, they know exactly what it's going to be, because this was decided years ago, obviously. It will transfer automatically, he said. That's what they do, of course, with these implanted chips when you go into these clubs across Europe. Uh, that just happened to be uh, opened by a guy who worked for the NSA. And they embed you with a chip if you want to become a member, uh, and they, they'll charge the chip with so much credits, and you don't have to use cash at all. And, it, and youngsters think it's just fantastic. So they're going to do the same thing with your cell phone, etc. It says, we're very close in countries around the world. If you go into Hong Kong, and this is where we should watch, you see, because things come out in the, in the far east faster, electronic-wise, and they use them quicker uh, than they do across the West. He says, if you go into Hong Kong or Singapore, the low-value transactions have already disappeared. You can't go anywhere like on public transport without pre-purchasing a card. I think the Australian Payment Systems Board is very much on top of it and is trying to move down a path but hasn't publicly put things into place yet. Bank's SA General Manager Strategy and Operations, Chris Ward, expects Australia to follow the offshore lead with small cash transactions disappearing first. That's how it is going to go, with small transactions. So you can't go and buy a bottle of water from the deli with cash. You've got to go and buy it with your chip, he said. Bendigo and Adelaide Bank State Manager 
SANT John Oliver said it was easier for retailers to use electronic transactions than manual cash transactions. Savings and Loans Chief Executive Greg Connor said the concept of the wallets would go. Whereas now we have a wallet and purse, it will be a chip in your phone or your watch or something like that as your access, he said. Well, guess where it will go eventually? Because you know there's going to be a spate of, 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 of robberies or whatever to do with, with, with your, your phones. Wherever, whatever is charged with your credits is going to be stolen. And you know they're going to eventually give you the chip and say, this is much safer, until they start hacking your arms off. <laughs> Mr. Everest said credit cards were on the way out as well. The access to credit is still going to be there through the mobile, through the mobile phone. But you don't need the card because that's really only a means of identification, he said. It could be another way of identifying, but the product revolving credit will still sit there. So uh, this is starting to go within seven to ten, you know, within about seven years it's going to be here. And they'll do massive campaigns on television. It'll be in sitcoms and, and, and in movies and so on to get everyone used to the idea because everybody emulates TV and so on. They know that. Plato said that. That's why everyone in ancient Greece had everyone. When the local players came in, or not so much local, but came in locally from another town or country, these traveling players, everyone had to, by law, attend the plays because, you see, it was through what you saw on stage that you emulate into your culture. It becomes your culture. It updates your culture. And he wrote about that technique back then, all that time ago. And it certainly, people do emulate what they see on TV. They try to become what they see on TV. It does work. I've gone through the Bernays history to an extent and how this guy was brought in, this relative of Freud, to basically create the American culture of consumerism. And you could make the people believe anything, anything at all. And according to one of the videos that's up there with his sister talking, he hated the public because they were so easily manipulated. He despised them. And I've said that about psychopaths, they despise the victim that's so easily used. Despise them, hate them. Here's how young women are being lured into bankruptcy by celebrity lifestyle stuff on television. And it's from The Telegraph. It says here, young women who copy the lifestyles of celebrities such as Paris Hilton or footballers' wives such as Victoria Beckham are behind a surge in female bankruptcies, according to a recent study by Alastair Jameson, 17th of June 2009. The research based on figures show that the majority of bankrupts are under 24, under 24 years of age are now female, concluded that women succumb to the temptation for spending sprees as they assert their independence. This is the excuse they're given for it. Last year, 55 percent of young bankrupts were female compared to 48% five years ago. In total, 1,560 women under 24 were declared bankrupt compared to 1,250 men in the same age group. And it says many young women have become trapped in debt because they buy designer clothes and accessories to display the trappings of success, the study said. They're trying to emulate what they see on television. And that's all they're fed on, on television. How they're supposed to look, how thin or, or they should be, etc. What they should wear. 
That's called success, democracy. The research based on data from the insolvency service found that young women were keener than young men to demonstrate their independence by renting or owning their own flats. Anthony Cork of accountancy firm Wilkins Kennedy, which compiled the research, told the Daily Mail five years ago it tended to be young men who got out of their financial debt, but now it's far more likely to be young women who spend irresponsibly. That gap between the genders seems to be growing over the last decade. The pressure on young women to follow the lavish lifestyle of female celebrities has grown immensely. In all seriousness, we're told that Paris Hilton and Victoria Beckham are role models to be followed. Well, see, everyone you see on there is a role model to be followed. That's what the culture industry is. Do you remember the Spice Girls? The ones that were picked up, put together as a, as a team. Uh, I've no doubt all the songs were written before they were even picked. And we told how many hits they'd have, then they'd fade away. That's pretty standard. What do you think they were portraying? Because they said that their, their, their main audience, their target group, was about 8 to 12-year-olds. Did you ever see any of the videos they put out there? What do you think that was all for? Is it that splay-legged and chairs with no clothes on? Monkey see, monkey do, eh? You wonder why the culture is in the mess it's in. The people who give it to you know what they're doing. They must destroy all that was to bring in the new, the new society. It says here, the growing availability of credit has meant that for the status conscious who want to exhibit the trappings of success, designer clothes and jewelry seem misleadingly achievable. According to official figures, 29% of all 20 to 34-year-olds now live with their parents compared to just 18% of women of the same age group. Last year, around 67,500 people in all age groups were pers- went pers- <laughs> bankrupt. 67,500 people in all age groups went personally bankrupt. In England and Wales, an increase of 89% over the last five years. Mind you, too, you understand a lot have lost their jobs as well. Overall, those over the age of 45 are the most likely to go bankrupt as falling house prices and rising unemployment reduce their ability to manage debt, according to the Wilkins Kennedy study. Almost 40% of those declared bankrupt last year were over 45, with bankruptcy in this age group more than doubling in the past five years. Just work hard, son. Just work hard and stick at that job all your life and get a house, and that's your security for the future, son. Oh. Boy, we're schmucks, eh? We're schmucks. When people at the top, with a stroke of a pen, can bring everything down, and you'll never even see their faces. That's the reality of the world. And I've mentioned, too, that whatever they do at the top, whatever they say, you can take it to the bank. That won't go bankrupt because they never change their plans. You know, they do tell you in advance what they're going to do. And I've talked before about the coming dome cities because I met one of the guys who was into designing them back in the 80s. And I've mentioned, too, that Prince Charles was on his polo team, not the other way around. And people laugh at this idea and poo-poo it, etc. Well, he's from a Houston newspaper. His experts say Houston Dome may help environment. 
the science of mega-engineering says we can save Houston. Houston now is very hot and humid, it always has been. Just with a dome, imagine building a huge dome that covers the entire city that is higher than Houston's skyscrapers. One solution to counter the almost overwhelming environmental challenges facing Houston is to cover it with a giant geodesic dome. You can watch the video at the Discovery Channel and explore how a giant geodesic dome may save the city from a grim environmental future. Since Houston is in peril, the country's fourth most populous city faces heat, hurricanes, and other natural disasters it always has. Since Houston has always been vulnerable to hurricanes and severe weather, Houston's city centre shut down for nearly a week from last year's hurricane, which caused the city $10 billion damage. It's not only the hurricanes, but also heat and humidity that keep oppressing this great city. On nearly 100 days each year, the temperature climbs above 90 degrees. Air conditioning helps, but it comes at a very high cost. Houston is is using more electricity than Los Angeles. That's why some scientists think the only way to save the city is to move it indoors, move the city indoors. In other words, to build a huge dome for Houston. The Houston Dome area will stretch over 21 million square feet, making it the biggest structure with the largest roof in the world. Well, it won't be until they do the next city. And that's the music coming in. I'll read more in this article after I come back from this break. Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix. Continuing with an article about the building of the first, I guess, Dome City. And apparently they picked Houston for this project. It says the Dome's broadest panels will be 15 feet across. It'll take 147,000 panels to cover the city. Glass will not work for Houston. Then it goes into the fabrication of the stuff that they will use, etc., and the companies that will be involved. It says since it's not possible to stop stop the life in Houston to build the, the dome uh, and army, an army of dirigibles will be used to complete the construction it says it will take years of constructions and billions of dollars, the dome is designed to protect the city from a category 5 hurricane the ETFE panels and the space frame steel structure that supports them are the key it goes on to, to push up the, this, uh, how fantastic these materials actually are it says they'll stand 180 mile per hour winds. It says this is higher velocity than the strongest Category 5 hurricane. Houston's do- uh, dome area is very intriguing, but I'm left with one idea. Will Houston ever see rain? If not, is it possible to sustain an ecosystem of such a size without rain? So they will go ahead with these projects. And I was thinking today even about that big experiment they had a few, uh, back in the, I don't know, the 70s or 80s where they hired a bunch of youngsters and and various couples to live inside a dome in the country somewhere, and then they wrote a book about it and how wonderful it was and how they sustained themselves by growing everything themselves, etc., and eating their own produce, and how it was was basically self-sustaining. And then afterwards, after the book was out and the, the various wildlife funds made a hoopla, how wonderful this was, 
uh, the characters who were involved in the project, the, the, the volunteers, admitted that they were sneaking out every night from the very beginning down to the pizza restaurants and the, and the, the burger joints and getting friends to smuggle stuff up to them. So they were eating their usual stuff after all. Socialism is great for depersonalization of people. It doesn't see people as individuals with hopes and dreams and expectations and families and loves and different personalities. It just sees a mass of, of numbers. And this article, to close off the show, is from The Telegraph. Social policy is ruining childhood. Childhood is being undermined by a string of oppressive demands from governmental ministers. They call them ministers over there, not politicians. Disguised as social policy, experts have claimed. 17th of June 2009, academics said uh, legislation introduced over the last 20 years increasingly cast children and their families as numbers rather than real people. It meant their needs were being shunned in favor of targets that could be easily measured, it was claimed. This is researchers from the University of the West of England, Bristol, criticized policies such as Labour's new curriculum for under fives. The Early Years Foundation stage, which is called EYFS, which must be followed by all state and private childminders, nurseries and preschools, sets out a series of 69 learning goals, including literacy, numeracy and problem solving. As you see, we're all supposed to be standardized. Every child's different. Some mature better than others in certain areas and quicker. Others mature and take over uh, and go very fast later. But we're all supposed to be the same in the socialist, bureaucratic mindset. It's sad, isn't it? But anyway, I'll put all these links up on my site, cuttingthroughthematrix.com, at the end of the show. So look in there, read them up for yourself. It's quite interesting. From Hamish, myself, in Ontario, Canada, it's good night. And may your God or your gods go with you.